This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. Today, I'm very happy to be talking to Chris Yogurst about a new, well, relatively new book. It's been a little while while I tried to organize this, but the book is called simply The Warner Brothers. And it makes it pretty easy to know what we're talking about, unlike some of the books that I've talked with authors about have to explain the title. In your case, very straightforward. So, Chris, you've written a number of books about Hollywood and a previous book about Warner Brothers in the 1930s. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about just your personal history and what made you, you know, what got you interested in doing this book? Um, a, a number of things. Well, I'm, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the title of this. My my previous book was nearly impossible to title. I mean, it's it's Hollywood Hates Hitler and then a long subtitle. And that was, you know, about the 1941 Senate investigation into motion picture propaganda. So it's like, how do you title that? Um, so it was a lot easier with the Warner Brothers, where it's just the Warner Brothers. Uh, but I, I got into the Warner Brothers first just through the movies. I really, they the, there was just something different about the Warner Brothers movies that drew me in. They were, they were tight. They were faster. They were edgy. Um, so it started with the gangster films. Um, I was really interested in that. And then once I expanded the, you know, the, the, the canon, I, I, I learned that, you know, all of their movies were mirroring our world in really interesting ways that the other studios either weren't doing or weren't doing as much. And, you know, the, the, you know, the house style at Warner Brothers seemed to be this topical rip from the headlines kind of thing. And the more I learned about the brothers, the more I learned that this had a lot to do with their own attitudes um, just as people um, that seemed to have this top down effect at the studio and, you know, the kinds of people they hired and the kinds of talent that, that was attracted to the studio, this grittier studio uh, it, it seemed to to produce the same kind of really awesome, really edgy, of the moment movie. Yeah, no, I think that is, I think it's true. I think most people don't recognize the brand, if you will, that each studio represented. And of course, going back in history, their their histories as businesses reflect the individuals because they were entrepreneurial Very much. Yep. in the early days, which you talk about. I mean, we should say this is a basically a, a history of the Warner Brothers from the beginning prior to the start of the studio. I mean, you talk about their family, how they got here, all of which is really interesting. And of course, all of the all of the studios were almost all started by immigrants. Um, yeah. usually first or second generation immigrants, which gave them a certain cachet or, you know, an ability to see the world in a different way. Oh um, yeah. It impacted their outlook big time. Yeah. But what, it, what resonates for me, and this is just a little bit of my personal history that my grandfather worked for Warner brothers for, I think it was 30 years, a little under, maybe a little under 30 years, starting in the twenties, he was the East coast story guy. So his job, he was based in New York. His job was to buy uh, books and plays for Warner. And so, you know, I don't know whether the other studios had a person stationed in New York city. I don't think they did. Um, and so I think that reflects what you're talking about with Warner, that they, you know, it's not that none of the other studios were literary, uh, but you know, although there is a certain uh, 
tension between pop culture and literary culture, you know, pretty clearly throughout the history of popular film. Oh, but absolutely. Warner Brothers w was definitely more interested in a different presentation of pop culture. A, a, not necessarily more serious. They still wanted to make money. They, you know, as the famous line, I think it was Harry who said, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. That was actually, I think that was Sam Goldwyn. Okay. See, I can I can never remember. I think that's a line that's been attributed to everyone at some point, I feel like, you know, so, and that's one that I, I tried to do a little digging on and I'm trying to remember, I think it's, I think it's Sam Goldwyn, but um, I don't think, I mean, all I know is going through all the Warner stuff, I don't think it was one of the Warners, but it's something that, and that wouldn't have actually, you know, that definitely wouldn't be the Warners because they, they loved message movies, right? I mean, that was their thing. I mean, it was, Go I think it was Goldwyn, but it could have easily have been Louis B. Mayer, right? Because he, you know, he was big on the escapist movies and that kind of stuff. Right. But they, even Warner Brothers wanting to do um, stories that were resonant and were edgier, definitely, um, would still reject anything that was not commercial, that they didn't see as being popular because right. they wanted an audience. Um, yeah, so, you still got to make money. <laughs> yeah. And they were very good at that, um, you know, in terms of, and it's so interesting to think about. And you, you, I think you talked about this. I also read a couple of biographies of the um, Mankiewicz's. Uh, in, you know, in the last couple of years, and you think about the number of movies that were being made each year in the heyday. Um, you know, the amount of work that was going, the production line that was going on in all the studios, but including Warner um, in the twenties, thirties, and into the forties. It didn't slow down until much later. Well, there was one year um, the Warners were, it accounted like 80 movies or something. And that was just one studio. Right. And most of these big studios are cranking out, you know, numbers like that. And, and, and that's, that's why we're still discovering movies from that era. You know, there's still stuff that, you know, either hasn't been released or prints are discovered and all this kind of stuff. You know, they're, they're reconstructing, um, Warner brothers, uh, the gold diggers from 1923, um, you know, there's stuff that we, you know, we're, we're still getting access to stuff, which is why I think one of the reasons why the, this, this part of the 20th century is, is endlessly interesting because there's always something to learn. Well, I learned, I actually learned a lot from this book that I don't think was, you know, I just, I think kind of you develop an image of each of these, the moguls, you know, from that era mm -hmm. as being of a certain hard bitten, um, you know, um, it, you know, from coming from the, the immigrant background, you know, the, they were mostly uneducated and mostly self-made in the classic mm -hmm. American 20th century way. And you kind of don't understand the, uh, complexity of their individual lives because we think of them in this sort of, um, imagistic way um Definitely. because you know that's what we have from from our versions of pop culture however it came to us and i think you give a lot more nuance to well not only were there four brothers which mm -hmm. each of them being very very different um but particularly jack and harry who are the two most public of the four warner brothers right 
It was really good. When Sam was very public, but he sadly died in 27, right? So we got, and then Albert was very not public. And when there were other brothers too, there was, there was Milton who died in the teens, who was, would probably would have worked at the studio. And then you had David who, who um, had a lot of health issues and lived with his parents his whole life. Um, and there was Warner sisters, right? I mean, there was a whole family here. Um, so I try to, I try to give some credit to as much of it as, as I could to, to show, uh, you know, a human story, like you said, you know, we know the, this larger than life up on the water tower version. Um, but, you know, these were also people. And, you know, last week I did a talk in Burbank at the Burbank Public Library and some of the Warner family was there. And Jack Warner's, um, Jack Jr.'s daughter was there. So Jack Jr. got, you know, Jack Sr. kept trying to kick him off the lot, eventually kicked him out of, off the lot and out of the business. And when I met and talked with his daughter, you could tell that the, that pain is still there in 2023. You know, the ripple effects of some of these decisions, <clears throat> you know, made many decades ago are still uh, just like we're still loving some of these movies, some of the bad stuff still has really negative ripple effects. And, and you could you could feel that emotion. It was really powerful. Um, and just kind of another reminder that, you know, just further validating what I was trying to do with this book is trying to show them as people. Right. These were these weren't just monolithic, larger than life beings. They were also people with friends and families. And, you know, as much as Jack Warner, uh, you know, what I did a lot of bad, nasty things. He was also good to some people, I I found out. <laughs> so I tried to put all of that in there. No, and you mentioned, I think that I, it's not just being good or bad either. It's the kind of volatility and kind of interesting um, decision-making and complex, you know, the sort of, I, especially when you think about how Warner and other students, but particularly Warner was on the front line of, almost every governmental mm -hmm. um, attack, essentially, or social attack on on the movies, Warner was always going to be the number one target because, as you said, they were the ones who were pushing the envelope, being the most edgy. Um, I think in America today, our, our memories are short. People don't realize culturally how, w one, interestingly, how much popular culture has been challenged constantly by quote the establishment or by conservatism because it's always uh representing uh change and mm -hmm. cultural energy that wants to be let out of the box um and warner brothers was one it was really involved in that and therefore was constantly under scrutiny or attack um and and the other thing you talked about this a lot it, it, they had to navigate the the rules, essentially, the customs and rules of the road where, um, you know, first they didn't have any restrictions, then they had, in order to avoid censorship, they essentially, the movie industry uh, self-censored. So they mm -hmm. had their office that had to review all their food. So they're constantly negotiating for what they could do. Uh, but then, as you pointed out, um, being brought in front of congressional committees to defend themselves kind of a lot like what happened. Remember what um, was it? Uh, Tippy Gore attacking rock and roll. Um, you know, that what happened music resource center, the PMRC. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this has been an ongoing theme in 20th and 21st century pop culture. 
is whatever the comics came under attack in the 50s movies there were book burnings for comics yeah. they were burning comics in the 50s yeah yeah so i i thought that was really an important part of this book which is to link together um without you know you're not preaching so but but to show through history how what we see today has um connections and uh, a, pretty much a straight through line going back over a hundred years it does and i i i also teach a class on the history of censorship because uh, i've been getting more and more interested in this and you know you know, one of the reasons I was also more drawn to Warner Brothers um, is when I was an, under, an undergrad or in grad school early on, I read Tom Doherty's book about the pre-code era. And there's a, several comments in there of the censors being particularly pissed off at Warner Brothers. So, of course, that made me only more interested to learn about why. And, yeah, they were always pushing the envelope. And, yeah, whether it was the Legion of Decency or the government on multiple occasions. Yeah. You mean Warner brothers defended. I mean, we all know about the, you know, the HUAC hearings and the red scare and all of that. And, and of course they didn't do a good job defending, but in 1941, Harry did a brilliant job defending the industry and his studio. And then Jack Warner, a lot of people don't know in the mid fifties, he did a very good job defending the movies against the child, the juvenile delinquency hearings. Uh, movies were on, on, on the chopping block again. Um, which which is uh, still so comical to me because you have Senator Kefauver who tries going after organized crime and then, you know, next thing, movies. <laughs> I know, it's bizarre. It is, but it shows you how powerful movies mm -hmm. were. Um, and, yes. you know, that in the same way, television is powerful, streaming today, TikTok. Again, you know, the moral panic over TikTok. Um, all of that is, it's very similar. It's a related path. It is the what they're you know it's it's you said it perfectly it's the moral panic right you know it's whether whether it's you know comics or movies or or literature or social media um, or music it's it's you know that that's all interchangeable but there's this historical through line that there is always a panic from certain groups that that you know, want to push against some you know they some form of popular culture they see as dangerous and. You know, in 1941, the U.S. Senate, some of the senators thought that anti-Nazi movies were dangerous, which is really sad. But it's like it but it was the same moral panic. Right. They just they thought this was a dangerous precedent to set and we should look at Hollywood closer because of it. Right. And I think you you sort of mentioned in passing a minute ago, the HUAC hearings, the, you know, the McCarthy Red Scare, which I think even though it has elements of moral panic, is somewhat different than all of the others and partly it's because of the a kind of radical fear of communism and mm -hmm. this idea that because i think the nuclear war nu the the fact of nuclear war was existentially threatening and the idea that um you know it's somehow it's it is connected to this fear of um you know, infiltration by of ideas that you know mm -hmm. that's what they were talking about when they talk about communists in the government. Like somehow mm -hmm. there were, um, they were trying to overthrow the government from within, and the there's something odd about it that is a little bit different from the juvenile delinquency. 
it's a different kind of fear. You're right. It's not it's not a fear based on like a religious objection, which the Legion of Decency was was usually what their their objection was. You're right. And that's why I think I try to put it in the book that with 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 HUAC, a lot of these people were were terrified. They weren't, you know, I don't think Jack Warner, even a lot of the the brothers, you know, a lot of a lot of the Hollywood founders moved from the political left to the right throughout their lives. I think in 47, the the you can't discount how much the Red Scare took over the United States. And, you know, they I think they realized that if if they don't take a stand somewhere, regardless of how ridiculous it might be, they might just lose their businesses. People might just stop going to movies. So it was very desperate. And I think you would use the word existential as a perfect threat to a lot of things. And you're right. I, I agree. I think that the the Red Scare stuff stands. I mean, there's similarities to the, a lot of the panics, but it, it there are so many layers to that that were, it seemed to still be unpacking, that it still... It, it, stands on its own in a lot of ways. I think maybe, I, I don't know, I'm no expert in this because there's sort of psycho, uh, social psychology involved, but I also think it's economics and that mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the threat to ownership of in capitalism is really the thing that motivates more than anything else. You know, uh, uh, religion and sociology like juvenile delinquency even music you know uh, gay um, culture all those things which definitely cause moral panic are probably different than the threat to property <laughs> and power right. um, that communists you know communism represented at that time and that today you know you see it a little bit I think today with the sort of demonization of Antifa as if it was somehow a powerful movement that could change, you know, alter mm -hmm. the course of human history, which is bizarre. And right. like the Communist Party in America had any power whatsoever. Um, now that said, if you look closely at the ideas of and the films of the writers who were um who were in fact blacklisted, um, they were writing um creatively socially progressive mm -hmm. um films they were not communistic propaganda no. but they were right. definitely progressive um and and maybe that's enough to scare um when you are fearful of the existence of your economic system and power you will go and and the other thing i know this is going to sound like a broken record but they it was much more threatening to the um, power structure and the film industry and television industry and mu music, radio, and uh, and even print media felt that it was more existentially threatening to them, mm -hmm. as you just alluded to, that they they had to essentially sacrifice at the margin what they considered to be at the margin. You know, give mm. uh, give them a few of the people that we think might have been the worst. You know, I put that in quotation marks. Yeah. Um, that you you will then save the larger structure, and you know, you can or argue the morality of that, the ethics of that. Um, mm -hmm. It does make you worry that in the face of serious threat, that any you know any industry would just give in. And, and protect themselves, right. 
Yeah. And, and that's why I think the more, the further we get from that era, the more I feel like Trumbo had it right when he did it. He made his you know famous only victims comment that this like nobody won that. It was just an awful situation all around, even for the people um, that were still in power in Hollywood. And you mentioned a good point, too, about about losing power or losing property. Right. This is coming along the same time that the Paramount decrees are coming in. So the. You know, even though Warner Brothers was never a, a studio that had a massive chain of theaters, they still had theaters. And, you know, that was a big existential threat to Hollywood um, as a vertically integrated, uh, you know, system that that was that was being unraveled throughout the late 40s. I mean, that had been they had been a- attempting that at least since the 30s, maybe before that. Um, and it was it was coming. It was getting close as that red, you know, the post-war years where it's like, you know, that's also when a viewership peaked, I think, in 46 uh, is when these big like 85 million a week numbers come from. And pretty quickly, the ground starts to shake underneath all of that. And you've got the Paramount decrees, you've got the the Red Scare and, and you've got the ripple effects of both of those uh, that create a really massive threat to the industry. And I think that's that's. You need to know all of that when you're reading into everything else that's happening in that era, because you know everybody, wherever you were in Hollywood, you were on shaky ground. No, I think that's a good point, and I think we today, most people are not aware that the you know the movie studios, most of them own theaters. They originally mm-hmm. mostly came from theaters. You know, you were a you were a uh, uh, you presented film then you wanted to make film in order to have something to present. And so it's ironic that then they became most successful as makers of film rather than as essentially displayers. Exhibitors and distributors. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the trajectory that the Warners took too. They were showing movies, they were distributing movies and then making movies. So interesting to think too, that, you know, it was conceivably, um, legitimate monopoly vertical monopolization was something that the antitrust laws um uh do not favor but they but not every verticalized industry is it is gone after so right it's interesting to you know why was the movie business gone after and you know could it have been anti-semitism or could it have been because they were not as you know they don't they didn't really own they were not indus- industrial companies. They didn't own factories. Um, they weren't like AT and T, which was a legal monopoly. You know, you kind of think maybe they were just, you know, they're more on the edge of 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 the industrial world. So, right. Well, and they were always a good target. I mean, that's that's why I think the the house went after Hollywood during the Red Scare because that's going to get headlines, and that's what um, and it was effective and. One of the things that was interesting when I was researching the Senate investigation from 41 is that the second person that that went after Hollywood on the second day, um, uh, Senator Wheeler, he makes a or Senator Clark, rather, he uh, he makes an argument that I think tells us the entirety of even though there was anti-Semitism and xenophobia is a part of that entire thing. He makes a big point about how it's unfair that the newsreels get Hollywood gets more attention in the newsreels than elected politicians. And that's not fair. And he thought that elected politicians should be at the top. So you could see the sour grapes approach to to that. And, and 
you know, it, it, was, it was one of those deals where it's like you're reading all these arguments and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is why you're really mad. This is, you know. Right. It's about not getting enough attention. <laughs> right. And I, and I think that a lot of times Hollywood is a target throughout history, you know, for, for reasons other than what it might seem initially. And this is, you know, these are all examples of that. I thought another thing I wanted to mention is that you talked a little bit about how Jack Warner kind of missed the television um, opportunity. And I think maybe that's true of all of those old guys, the moguls, who just, you know, they came up as innovators and they were really, really smart guys. All guys, I have to say. Um, but they, you know, as often is the case, you're bound by your history and it makes it really hard to see the future. Um, mm -hmm. was, was there, were any of them able to recognize that television was going to, it could be the, you know, they saw it as a threat. Like we don't want TV cause it's going to take audience. It's a zero sum game idea, but mm -hmm. you know, they could have, you know, keep thinking about how, well, if they had just embraced it instead of rejected it what would the world look like right and that that and i think there there's a couple things going on here one of them is is by the time tv you know that had been talked about since at least the 30s once it becomes a real thing and we know it's coming most of these founding fathers are either gone or retired or old enough to where it's like ah, i don't want to deal with this and that's where jack was he didn't want to deal with he ended up having to, and then he put Bill Orr there in the position of running the TV. But Harry, what I learned in my research is Harry was actually on board with this. Um, by the late 40s, early 50s, he was he tried to invest in TV and the, the antitrust folks shut him down. He tried to buy a couple stations um, and he, he made the argument that it wasn't to expand TV, but it was it was a way to show his movies. So it was a way to make up for what they lost with theaters. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. But by that time, he was getting really old and ready to retire. And um, but I think had Harry been a little bit younger, he might have made some really interesting moves that would have revolutionized, revolutionized TV maybe even sooner. Um, but but the antitrust shut him down. Maybe he would have got shut down by the antitrust folks, too. I mean, who knows? But um, but yeah, Jack definitely was not a fan. And, you know, again, a lot of any of the, the old old school guys that were still around, most of them weren't just because it was, you know, they had spent their entire life building an industry. Why do they need to saddle up with another one? Yeah, which is fair. I mean, you know, it, and it is true. I get it. You know, they started, this was another thing I noticed as you, you know, in the book, you know, you sort of end in 1980. That's kind of the mm. point when it's the uh, memorial for Jack Warner at USC. And I thought, you know, it's, uh, and I remember this, you know, my, my grandparents lived through that era and I, it's just such an amazing period. If you look at the 20th century from, you know, 1900 to 1980, the amount of change was unprecedented and the amount of, um, creativity in a lot of ways, unprecedented. And the, and Warner is part of that. And so are all the other studios, you know, it's not just them. Um, but, it's just an amazing period of time and that Mervyn Leroy was still around in 1980, but he, he, go, you know, he goes back to what I think 1930. Um, yeah. 
he, he was way back. Yeah. So some of the, some very few of the, you know, but there were people working in the studio who had been there. And the, I think you talked to some of them in, in a couple of your interviews, people who had been around a really, you know, at the very beginning who were still alive. Oh yeah. I found a lot of great interviews and I, and actually I, I've been talking with Greg Orr and he was at that USC event. Um, so he was able to give me a little, I mean, of course it was after my book, I might add something in the preface to the paperback, but I mean, yeah, he, he talked about how interesting it was of the attitudes. I mean, you, you, and for a lot of good, good reasons, some of the actors are frustrated at the bosses, you know, that you've got the, the historic battles between Jack Warner and Betty Davis and Cagney and Olivia de Havilland and everybody else. But by the end of their lives, they were all grateful for, you know, they look back and, and they were, you know, they were over any of the frustrations they had. And they, they look, look back, almost all of them look back and said, yeah, you know, we had a hell of a lot of fun. That was pretty cool. Uh, and you're right. You, th you, you think about the amount of change from 1900 to 1980. I mean, that that's just insane. I mean, we've had, I mean, even in the last 30, 40 years here, I mean, you know, with the, you know, digital revolution, we've had some unprecedented changes. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and you're right that that ends at an interesting time where, you know, just a whole lot more innovation was coming, um, you know, after that whole era was finally gone. Right. And there was a rocky period of time, as you mentioned, you know, the, but the studio system falling apart, um, you know, what comes after it is really complicated. And, you know, then you have the studios being bought by non, um, you know, non Hollywood companies, you know, uh, um, sort of conglomerates owning multiple properties and, you know, the, uh, Warner and I think Paramount, um, Gulf and Western, you know, all these, the companies were being run by non Hollywood people. Um, but then there's a, then that kind of that change because film is so powerful, it doesn't just disappear. Um, and we now today, you know, 40 years later, probably um have you know you, you, i mean i i'm not a scholar of hollywood but you can see today is really represents a powerful period of change yeah it's almost the same you've got streamers and tech companies buying up studios or threatening to buy up studios and yeah right now the next few years and the last few years are going to look a lot like the late 60s and early 70s did in hollywood yeah i think it's interesting merger mania <laughs> well, I really, I really appreciate the book and thank you for spending some time talking to me about of course. it. I really enjoyed it a lot, not just because of my personal connection, but I learned a lot. It's a great book. So thanks for, well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being on. Uh, this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host, and I've been talking to Chris Yogurst, the author of The Warner Brothers. <laughs>